Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Today is Horticulture Day. I'm Charity Nebbe. For a lot of gardeners and homeowners, there is an urge to make things clean and tidy when the growing season ends. But if we want to make our landscape wildlife friendly, sometimes less is more. This hour, we'll find out what we can do to support birds and other wild critters with our landscaping decisions. Adam Jenke is here, Iowa State University Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management and Extension Wildlife Specialist. Hello, Adam. Good morning, Charity. And, you know, a lot of people are planting with pollinators in mind these days. That's gotten to be more and more popular. But there are a lot of other creatures we can support in our landscape, right, beyond pollinators. Yeah, that's right. Well, and I always like to remind people, I think of pollinators as wildlife, too, and even some vertebrate wildlife like uh, uh, hummingbirds and orioles and uh, even probably some mammals are uh, pollinators in some cases. But yes, we can expand the portfolio of species that benefit from our landscapes by thinking creatively about how all the other organisms that we share our backyards with could benefit by things uh, we do there, or as you mentioned in the introduction there, by things we don't do there as well. Right. Let's talk about that less is more approach. So, I mean, obviously we've had some snow on the ground and, and things have happened, but when the growing season comes to an end, what do we need to think about as far as habitat for the winter? Yeah. Um, so, right. A lot of things we think about in our yards are things that we can do for summer uh, benefits. And that's great. Uh, lots of diverse animals take advantage of our yards that time of year. But during the winter time, lots of things also want to try to make a living outdoors uh, in our cold Iowa winters. And so uh, what can we do to help them? We can think about places uh, where we could provide food sources for wildlife during the winter. Of course, we're not growing any more food during the winter, but all the things that we grow grew during the summer could potentially provide food for wildlife during the winter time. Think of things like uh, seeds. So we appreciate the flowers for their nectar and their uh, beauty during the summertime, but all of those flowers are going to turn into a seed or a fruit of some sort. And many overwintering species of wildlife, like birds and small mammals, uh, will take advantage of those seeds. So uh, not removing those from our landscapes can be a really good way to support the animals that are living in our landscapes during the wintertime. Another thing that we can do is many of those organisms that we're interested in during the summertime kind of just go to sleep in our landscapes during the winter time. Uh, think primarily insects. And so think of, um, you know, ground nesting bees or even some species of flies or wasps that uh, will burrow into dead or dying plant material to, to wait out Iowa's winter to emerge uh, next spring or summer leaving undisturbed last year's plant growth uh, can be a really good way to do right by those organisms and make sure that they survive the winter uh, and will be with us next summer. Does that include leaf litter? Yeah, that's a really common question that we're getting these days. Um, and certainly, you know, leaf litter, especially in forested ecosystems, is important. Um, it's a niche that many different organisms have taken 
advantage of it provides insulation if nothing else uh, for things that may be in the ground beneath and then um, yeah some organisms even will actually just use the litter itself now i'm sure we're going to get into this today uh, there's a trade-off there um, and i'm looking at aaron here across the bench from me and uh, we're, we're going to want to talk about that like don't expect to leave a bunch of leaf litter on your nice turf grass and then find that nice nice turf grass uh, there in the spring uh, because that leaf litter, of course, will um, affect that's growth. But but if you can leave leaf or plant litter in idle areas in your yard or what I often talk about is just finding ways to sort of reimagine uses of what is today turf grass uh, in, in, in a few years could be sort of diverse native landscaping. Uh, leaving the leaf litter in those areas is good, certainly good for wildlife and uh, allows you to spend your time on something else. All right. So, so you need to understand your landscape to make these decisions, but leaving some things be can be a really good decision. Um, this is a good time of year to do some pretty hard work battling invasive species, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Winter is a great time to sort of engage in what I call hand-to-hand combat with uh, our more problematic invasive species. Um, Picture a forest, uh, and over the last few weeks, you may have noticed that the understory, think the first uh, five feet or so of the forest from the floor uh, going up, uh, has been awfully green. If you've been driving around Iowa, I drove across Iowa, Illinois, to my hometown of Indiana last uh, last week, and I noticed the whole way, the first five feet of the forest was really bright green. Well, that's a reminder of the challenge that we have with invasive exotic forest plants, in this case, primarily honeysuckle, but also in northern Iowa, uh, European buckthorn. These invasive species from uh, Europe or Asia uh, stay green and photosynthesize way later into the year than our native plants. And that's one of many ways that they have sort of a competitive advantage over other native understory plants. And so seeing all that green in your forest reminds you that there is work to do. And that work to do is to go into those areas and try to remove those woody plants during the winter time. Uh, removing those woody plants during the winter time is just a little bit easier. The ground is frozen. It's kind of easier to get in there and cut them. Uh, and then, of course, it also doesn't risk disturbance to other species of animals that may be nesting. Uh, during other times of year's year, we could think about removing them. So honeysuckle, European buckthorn, they're certainly at the top of my most wanted list. And winter is a great time of year to go uh, into the woods or into your landscape uh, and cut those down and maybe turn them into a nice brush pile to support the local cottontail rabbits or overwintering uh, sparrows or, or juncos. Now, I mean, when you you were talking about how the understory looks so green, I mean, there's so much honeysuckle. There's so mm-hmm. much buckthorn in Iowa. So it's hard to tackle it all at once. They will lose their leaves eventually. Is this a good time of year to go out and, and tie something around the trunks of each one so that you can work on this through the winter? Oh, that's a great idea. Um, yeah, to sort of help... Uh, with your your botany or your plant ID. Um, the case with honeysuckle is such that if you see right now uh, that it's there's still a green shrub in the bottom of your forest, it's pretty likely that that's going to be honeysuckle and there's not going to be much else. But you do make a really good point, Charity, that when you're doing these control operations, you need to have good plant ID skills because um, 
as honeysuckle becomes more and more abundant, the remaining few native regenerating oaks or um, native shrubs or um, other uh, vines even that do persist are more and more important, right? Because we're just losing um, their their footing uh, in their seed sources. And so, uh, yeah, it's important to not go into the woods and just clear everything and try to focus your efforts on those exotic species. And as you mentioned, as you're learning how to identify these plants, um, marking them this time of year is a really good idea to, to help you make sure you cut the right thing later in the winter. Do you have some advice for your best practices for removing these species? Yeah, um, there's, we have some articles on our website with uh, um, chemical options to sort of assure that you kill the plant. I think in a home garden or backyard situation, it's okay to just be persistent and just cut them year after year. Uh, These deciduous shrubs, like all deciduous trees and shrubs, will re-sprout after you cut them. They just sort of have that natural ability. And so if you don't treat them with an herbicide, then they will uh, re-sprout. But in cutting them, uh, you're going to be setting back the growth, obviously. uh, And then you could continue to cut in subsequent years in your backyard. This is actually a practice I'm using in my own yard right now. I'm just not using herbicide, but just sort of really being persistent with uh, cutting of honeysuckle. But you can also look, um, there's some recommendations on the Iowa Department of Natural Resources website and also recommendations on our Natural Resources Extension website for the right chemical products to use to cut, to uh, treat the cut stumps. And that's a really uh, good practice to ensure that it doesn't re-sprout. And I've also noticed that there are more and more native landscaping businesses popping up that are doing invasive species removal. So if you if you don't want to take it on yourself, there might be somebody Absolutely. you can pay to do this work for you. Yeah. Um, this is not a great time of year to plant many things, but it is a good time of year possibly to plant prairie. Tell me what we should be thinking about there. Yeah, that's right. We always remind people that the way Mother Nature plants prairie is to cast the seeds onto largely frozen ground. If you need proof of that, just go walk around in a prairie today and notice all of the um, grasses and wildflowers that are still holding tight to their seeds on the residue of last year's plant. That reminds us that the way nature tends to plant prairie is to allow for those seeds to slowly uh, fall to the ground throughout the winter time, and then eventually through the processes of freezing and thawing, uh, work their way into just the very top of the soil surface uh, and grow anew. And so we can mimic that practice by uh, doing what we call frost seeding techniques to planting prairie. Now, it's important to do this in a site that's sort of ready for it. So um, I'm all for uh, people planting prairie in their yard. Uh, But if you uh, have a portion of your yard that was turf grass all summer and you haven't done anything to prepare that site to become something else, you're probably not starting in the right place just yet. You want to get control over turf grass first. And so you can do that with herbicide treatments next year, or you could lay cardboard or a tarp down to try to kill, uh, smother that grass underneath. And then once you've got control over that turf grass, then you can think about seeding prairie. But if you have a site that's ready, like uh, an old old garden maybe, or um, what I always like to say is just a corner of a soybean field 
maybe one that has a lot of competition from nearby uh, sunlight competition from trees or uh, maybe a wet area, it's ready. Uh, And a soybean field is full of nitrogen from the nitrogen fixing properties of soybeans and, uh, and wouldn't have a lot of residue from last year's growth. And it's ready to be converted uh, into prairie this winter. Adam Jenke, Iowa State University Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management and ISU Extension Wildlife Specialist. For more information about gardening and tips, please subscribe to our Garden Variety Newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today is Horticulture Day, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions. Give us a call at 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100, or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With me today, Adam Janke, Iowa State University Extension Wildlife Specialist, and now Aaron Style is here, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Hello, Aaron. Good morning. Wonderful to have both of you here today. And of course, we are ready to answer questions. We've already got one from Susan. She emailed talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And she says, our power company has recently dug up and buried cables in the boulevards in front of our homes. They did a good job of coming around with new soil and fixed up all the digging areas. Then they came around and blew out a green substance with grass seed in it all over the dirt areas. What am I supposed to do with the grass seed? Can I do something to take care of it? So the big challenge will be in the spring. Um, so it's it's late, and that seed will probably sit dormant until spring and germinate. Um, and so watering in the spring, if it's dry, spring tends to be less dry, so that helps. And uh, watching for weeds, because one of the reasons we often recommend seeding grass in late summer, early fall, is because of weed competition. In the spring, the weeds are... Um, very competitive. <laughs> and so just making sure that you're getting in there, um, you know, and removing weeds if they start popping up before the turf does, um, watering when it's dry. And that stuff will establish um, pretty quickly. You might be surprised how fast it'll fill in. You know, Aaron, I have watched construction projects near my home over the years. Mm -hmm. And I remember one in particular where it felt like they just put down the grass seed at the wrong time over and over and over again. But it's not <laughs> technically your responsibility to, to try to correct that. I mean, would you warn no. homeowners against trying to, to see something that the city's responsible for? You know, um, not necessarily. I mean, we often plant that boulevard area in our homes because we want our homes to look nice. And we do that under the knowledge that this area could be disturbed 
you know, without us having at any moment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, and we plant trees in that space, too, with the same assumption. And most of the time that stuff is just fine um, for a long period of time. And so um, I don't think there's any problem with with that, making sure that you don't waste your time and your resources, you know, putting seed down in June or July is is not going to be very successful. Um, but, you know, helping it along so that the front of your house can look really nice. I don't see any problem with that. All right. So if it doesn't take off in the spring, then they might want to do some seeding themselves in August. Yeah, it'll help with the weeds for sure, because turf grass is very competitive with weeds when it's happy and healthy. All right. 866-780-9100 is the number to call with your questions about plants, trees, planting for wildlife, bringing a Christmas tree into your home, whatever you want to talk about today. <laughs> give us a call. 866-780-9100. Email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Eric is on the line in Dallas Center. Hi, Eric. Good morning. Hi. What's your question? Yeah, I, I've... We have two acres, and I got about a third of that is planted prairie. It's about 10 years old now. Uh, the brome is starting to get invasive around the edges and places. Is there anything that I can do now to help that? So this this time of year, Adam, what do you think? Yeah, brome is a huge challenge in prairies, especially as they age. Um, the brome is an exotic, cool-season grass that we tend to plant in roadsides and i suspect eric that maybe nearby brome had been planted um we there the challenge with brome is uh, a pretty persistent one but we think that occasional treatment with herbicide during the early growing season taking advantage of the fact that brome is a cool season grass meaning it grows during the early spring and summer and in the late summer and fall uh, whereas most of our native prairie grasses are warm season grasses that grow during, as the name implies, the warmer periods of the growing season. Uh, and so taking advantage of that different phenology can help uh, by timing disturbances well. Uh, those disturbances could be, like I said, herbicide and herbicide treatment, especially with a grass selective herbicide um, or um, any other sort of disturbance at that transition between cool season to warm season, like a late spring burn um, or uh, potentially even uh, mowing of the brome at the end of the spring, essentially. So let's talk about... Late spring burn. Late spring spring burn. burn. And then then throw in some more seeding. Yeah, interseeding is always an option, especially if nothing else, throwing some wildflower seeds into the mix so that it's at least not a monoculture of brome. Um, you know, driving around the state, you'll see on occasion some uh, forbs like even common milkweed can compete or, or grow in a stand of brome. But uh, yeah, trying to introduce a disturbance that times that cool season, um, a period when that plant is growing, um, that can try to sort of set it back can be an effective uh, strategy, although it is it is a challenge all across the state for sure. And Adam, you were just talking about you know you can add seeds in your prairie now. If he did that and then burnt in the spring, does that defeat the purpose? Nope, that wouldn't defeat the purpose. Most of those seeds would be passed over with the uh, burn, and then they would germinate next year, or even later. Uh, so adding those seed sources is just fine. Um, 
And yeah, this time of year is a good time to be adding seeds for a couple of reasons. One, they're just available. You could go out and find um, seed in the roadside or on your own property uh, and move them around. And then um, they're, it, as we talked earlier, it's also sort of the way nature nature plants them. So they'd work into the soil surface. And uh, the right type of burn, one that doesn't necessarily sit at a, a single spot for a long time, leaves a surprising amount of things behind, including seeds to facilitate the future recruitment of diverse perennials. Eric, thank you so much for the call. You can call us 866-780-9100, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And Sue is on the line next in Ames. Hi, Sue. Hello. Hi. What would you like to talk about? Um, milkweed. I'm trying to grow milkweed for the monarchs, and we have a deep shade garden. Now, I tried growing starts from Ryman Gardens that were local, you know, and could tolerate some shade. They didn't work. But a neighbor who has very robust-looking milkweed that grows in deep shade gave me some seed pods. So my question is, what do I do with them? When do I plant them? Well, so milkweed definitely would prefer full sun. So shade is, and, and you know, all the species of milkweed would prefer full sun. Um, and so uh, you could sow seed this, you know, you could spread the seed this fall um, or, you know, now essentially or in the next couple of weeks. And that would allow what we just talked about for them to kind of work themselves in the soil and get established. You could also, if you wanted to give them a head start, you know, start them like you do marigolds and petunias inside and, and grow them as transplants starting around mid to late March indoors and then transplanting them outside. Sometimes that's a little hard. Milkweed isn't the easiest thing in the world to transplant, but it's also not the hardest thing in the world to transplant. So, and that way you know where those plants end up. You can decide where they end up instead of when you spread the seed in the in the dormant season, it will it will pop up wherever it pops up and it may not pop up very well in the shade because it is so shady. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No. So, well, that's how so I think I might I'm going to add... try split. Go ahead. Go well, ahead, I was just going to add um you know, I, I assume that your interest in milkweed is for the monarch, which we love and appreciate and are seeing uh, all across our state. People are taking that challenge really seriously. But um, if your site isn't suited for milkweed, you can help the monarch in other ways by providing uh, nectar resources that um, like any flowering herbaceous or importantly, woody plants, uh, monarchs use any nectar source. And of course, all uh, woody plants will flower at some point as well. And in many cases, they provide a good flower for the monarch. Um, but then monarchs during migration also take advantage of woody plants a lot. And so if your site is too shady for milkweed and you want to do right by the monarch, you could just think about making sure there's nectar resources out there, uh, shade tolerant nectar resources uh, throughout the growing season when the monarch's going to be looking for food. And then think about diverse native woody plants like members of the uh, cherry or plum family or members of the dogwood family that uh, migrating monarchs could maybe take advantage of as they move uh, through our state and towards Mexico. Well, thank you. That's a good idea, too. Um, And I think I'm going to split the seeds I have and try both approaches. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. 
Sue, thanks Thank so, so much, much for the call. 866-780-9100. Sue brings up a, an interesting question, though, because when we talk about native plants, we often talk about sun-loving native plants. We focus a lot on prairie and, and you know, think about that. But there are lots of native plants that also grow in shady areas. Could you guys each make some suggestions about um, some native plants that, that might be great in your understory? And Adam, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, a couple of thoughts. Um, in terms of just plant recommendations, um, may I recommend trees? Uh, there, you know, we we do tend to think about plants that we tend in an annual basis or over just a few years, but you know, the best time to plant a tree was 30 years ago. The next best time is today. And uh, we really can do a lot of good for wildlife in the long term by planting native trees. And so, and of course, native trees generally are shade tolerant. So the one that comes to mind is this example that we're learning about how oaks just support a rich uh, ecosystem of organisms that rely on oaks. Um, Things like this time of year, we'll see white-breasted nuthatches and brown creepers climbing up and down oaks trying to find the the larvae of insects that are overwintering in their bark. Uh, The acorns are feeding all sorts of different species of wildlife this time of year. Um, And then all summer long, they support a rich diversity of uh, butterfly and moth caterpillars that feed uh, and literally grow the next generation of birds every single year. So so when I think of a shady spot, I think like, let's think about what's coming up. What's going to be making that shade in 30 years or even 80 years or 100 years from now uh, and make sure that those are a diversity of uh, native trees uh, and then below them shrubs. And so lots of different species of, of native shrubs to choose from. Um, I already mentioned dogwoods and members of the plum or prunus family uh, can be good ones. Gooseberry can be good. Um, I'm trying to think. uh, Members of the viburnum family can also be really good. Um, That kind of gets us there. Do you want to take it to uh, some herbaceous plants? Well, you know, it's funny because you bring this up, and I actually lean a lot towards woody plants too. And part of it is, is that, our uh, understory is a lot of woody plants Um, and woody plants are some of the lowest maintenance plants we can have in our landscape, which is also kind of a nice benefit. The first one that comes to mind for me is uh, service berry. I love service berry and it's a great, it's a great supporter of a lot of uh, native animals and insects. You know, you have this wonderful uh, flower in the spring, a nice white flower that would be good for pollinators. It's early, which is always something that's nice. We have fruit in the early to mid-summer, which is great for birds. It makes great jam, too, like if you can get it before the birds get it. It also tends to have really nice fall color, and it's actually a nice alternative to burning bush uh, in terms of having something that's native but still has some of those same um, attributes that we find in in a plant like burning bush. So I really enjoy, um, and there are different, there's lots of different varieties out there. Some of them can get pretty large. Most of them are multi-stemmed, but they have some shorter ones. I even have a little columnar one um, in my yard that is really lovely. So uh, that comes to mind. The viburnums are on my list. Nine bark is on my list. That's another nice one. I love elderberry. Um, as a native, and elderberry tolerates wet areas. So if you have that weird wet shade location, elderberry would be a nice option. And then when we start talking about herbaceous plants, we're really getting into the spring ephemerals are kind of the most dramatic, at least when we talk about nice things for our landscape. 
Um, and those um, are short-lived but really interesting. And some of those can be planted in the fall. Some of them can be planted in the spring. I just ask that you don't move them from the woodlands, that you get them right. from a reputable <laughs> source. But those are nice additions too, things like Virginia bluebells and trout lily and um, spring beauty and uh, trilliums, um, those kinds of things. All right, let's get back to the phones. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Kevin is up next in Mount Vernon. Hi, Kevin. Yes. Hi, what's your question? Yes, good morning. Uh, I've had, uh, I have 25, 28 acres we're putting in prairie next spring, uh, and it joins 35 acres I already have. The, the, and uh I've had established since 2000. So anyway, this new plot in the middle of it is a house lot. So we're, we're questioning on what sort of grass to do in the house, the two acre house yard area that will of course establish a lawn and, uh, but won't add an invasive species to the prairie like Brome we've been fighting for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping you can. <laughs> <laughs> There's some uh, there's some interesting native grasses that can work as uh, a lawn um, as a lawn replacement, and that you could manage very similarly to the way that you manage a lawn, a traditional lawn in Iowa. The big difference is that they're all warm season grasses. So the ones that come to mind are buffalo grass and uh, blue grama. Um, both of them can be mowed just like we mow Kentucky bluegrass. They don't have to be mowed quite as often. But the big difference is, is these grasses will behave very differently. They will be brown in the spring when everybody else's grass is green, and they will be green in the summer when everybody else's grass is brown. And so that's sometimes a little hard to get used to, um, but those are both species that would be much less problematic um, if they spread into that prairie planting uh, than things like brome or, or uh, some of the fescues and that kind of stuff. Yeah, Kevin. And the only other thing I would add is to think about um, having some sort of a border or some sort of a clear delineation of where the native planting ends and the um, cool season or the turf grass planting begins. Because uh, what we find is that that border can kind of be the source of the invasion. So Eric and our, our caller earlier talked about how Brome is sort of encroaching into his small prairie. And we see that everywhere. And in fact, we see that here on campus, even there's small, really pretty areas that they plant to prairie. And then in a few years, they've just converted over to, to the sod farming grass. And so, um, having, trying it where you can to have some sort of a border that, um, sort of marks the end of the prairie and the beginning of the, of the turf grass can also be a way to try to prevent issues in the future. Kevin, thanks so much for the call. You can call us too, 866-780-9100. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back to answer more of your questions in a moment with Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Adam Jenke, Iowa State University Extension Wildlife Specialist. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It's Horticulture Day today, and you are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about the plants and trees in your life. We've been talking a lot about planting native species to support wildlife and insects and our ecosystem. We'll also take questions about anything you want to talk about. With me today, Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist, and Adam Jenke, Iowa State University Associate Professor of Natural Resource Ecology and Management and Extension Wildlife Specialist. And let's get back to the phones. Ken is on the line in Dubuque. Hi, Ken. Okay, yep. Go Hello? ahead. Go ahead. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I, um, I have a love affair with the weeping willow, and I'm trying to plant native species whenever I can. And I'm just wondering if the weeping willow will say, serve the same purpose as the native willow as a keystone species for the pollinators. I, we're looking at each other. I, I can't say that I know definitively, but weeping willow is definitely not on like my list of enemies uh, in the woody plant <laughs> world, which is uh, that's good. That's something, log. right? Yeah, yeah. You should know that about <laughs> me. Like I have a quite long list, and so a weeping willow is not one that I'm personally all that worried about. And uh, Ken, I don't know if you're hinting at this, but like we do know that willow is like one of these keystone species that pr- hosts really high densities of. Uh, or a, a rich diversity of species of butterfly and moth larvae. And that would be true of our native willow, which there's uh, dozens of species. I don't know exactly how many native willows we have, but there's a lot of them. Um, but uh, I, I can't say that I know definitively that um, native butterflies and moths would take advantage of the exotic willow, but my suspicion is that they would. Do you know, Aaron? Okay. I, I mean, most of the time, uh, things that are closely related, whether they're from different continents or not, uh, can still support uh, native, in like native insects, for example, in in very similar ways because they are so closely related. So it's not unusual for an insect that um, relies on native oaks to also utilize non-native oaks, as an example. And I I would imagine that's and willow, willow is certainly. Um, one of those species that they they do interhybridize. Oaks do this like notoriously, but like you have some of that too, and so um, that means that they're relatively closely related and and likely still helpful. All right, Ken, that's that's certainly not a no. <laughs> Thanks so much for the call. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. And next up, we've got Pam on the line in Scott County. Hi, Pam. Hey, Charity. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. I just wanted to share a little feedback um, about the pollinators and the perennial slash woody plants. I have fall asters in my yard, and they are wonderful perennials, and I like them because pollinators love them in the fall, and they're hardier with the first frost. So, you know, if it's 31 degrees, they aren't like, I'm wilting. Um, <laughs> I had a purple one survive until about two weeks ago. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, and if if the person that was looking for plants um, lives near me, I live in Scott County, <laughs> um, I would be happy to share them because they do uh, – they're not a tidy plant, shall we say. You know, when they seed, they blow themselves around the yard and plant themselves. And so you have to be on the lookout. But they're not. Oh, I think Pam, Pam just suddenly disappeared on us. But that's OK. They they are very, very beautiful. You want to add anything, sure. Adam? Yeah, well, I, I would just 
echo what Pam said. They're among my favorites. And, and Aaron reminded us earlier that it's sometimes hard to find a nectar source early in the spring. That's where we like talk about um, uh, spring ephemerals or woody plants um, like serviceberry uh, providing that nectar source early in spring. Well, Pam reminds us that the same is true at the tail end of our season. We do pretty well by nectar sources in August, but come September and in late October, when there are a few trailing migrants, uh, like uh, migrating monarch butterflies, or importantly, bees are trying to get in really good shape before they go into a log or into the ground uh, for the winter time, those late season nectar resources are really important. And fall asters like heath aster, frostweed aster, or New England aster are really great examples of native plants that provide that nectar source and can stand up to a little bit of cold late in the year. All right, Pam, thanks so much for calling and and sharing your thoughts. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. You can send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Got another prairie question. Cassie's on the line. Hello, Cassie. Yeah, um, I just purchased an in-town acreage. It was like um, a pasture land for sheep for years and years and years and it has some weird topography so it can't be used for anything else um i'm not sure where to start with um replanting it for prairie or maybe putting um a forest or something back there it's about uh, two and a half acres on one side and then i have another two acres on the other um but right now it's just all like thistles and long grasses. I don't even know what that, what it is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what part of the state are you in Cassie? We're in Cedar Rapids. Okay. Um, yeah. So a couple of thoughts, one generally pasture in Iowa is, um, exotic, uh, turf forming, sod forming grasses. That tends to be, uh, the types of pastures that we have. So that would be my suspicion is that this area is mostly exotic, cool season grasses. Uh, which can, of course, when idled, be pretty good for wildlife. And um, if you think that uh, you're okay with letting that area go towards forest, I think that part of the state and the topography that you described, that's probably a pretty natural state for the site and would be good. You could aid it by getting some native trees and shrubs from the state forest nursery and uh, planting them and uh, watering them for a few years and armoring them against the urban deer that I'm sure are abundant and around. Um, but uh, I think allowing a site like that to kind of go towards a uh, forested condition would probably be my recommendation. If you did want to convert it to prairie, then uh, we would have to, you'd have to think about those uh, things that we talked about earlier in the show about getting control over those turf forming grasses first, primarily with herbicide, um, and then preparing the site for planting and then, uh, planting it. And then you would have to try to have relatively frequent disturbances that maintain a prairie, which is not impossible in a city, but it is a little bit harder. It's harder to burn or it's harder to get grazing animals out there or something like that. And so I think, just hearing the little bit that I've heard about your uh, property, my inclination is to say, yeah, kind of develop a plan, meet with a forester, uh, like with a forester with the Iowa DNR, get some ideas for the right tree species for the site and try to uh, shepherd it along into a, a nice forested ecosystem. I think that would be really beautiful. Okay. That sounds great. 
Yeah, thanks a lot for the call, Cassie. 866-780-9100 is the number. John is on the line next in Pocahontas. Hi, John. Hello there. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, what's your question? All right, I'll try to go real quick here. Uh, I recently moved to a new apartment complex, and there's a little bit of a garden space, and so I took some of my lilies and things. I love lilies, hibiscus, and clematis. They're kind of my babes. And I planted some of the lilies too close to the sidewalk, I think. And I'm worried come winter when it gets really cold, are those going to, is that sidewalk going to be too cold and affect them? Should I maybe dig them up and put them in a container and hide them in a dark closet in a cool space and then replant them come spring? Or should I just leave them alone and hope they make it through the winter? I would be inclined to leave them alone. Um, it'll be much more difficult to overwinter them in a container than this the location they're currently in. Um, if anything, the sidewalk will make the soils warmer because uh, it'll collect uh, solar gain or solar heat and radiate that out. And so it's likely that these uh, lilies would emerge earlier than they normally would. And just as they're emerging is probably the best time to transplant them. Um, you can see where they're at precisely, um, but they're still really small, so you're not dealing with a lot of foliage. And then they have the entire growing season to recover. So I would be inclined to wait until spring when they start emerging and then move them at that time uh, to a, a, a better spot or a spot that isn't so crowded. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. You guys have a wonderful show. I listen to it every Friday. Oh, thanks. It, 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 thanks, John. <laughs> you, you have a great day. Thanks a lot for the call. 866-780-9100 is the number to call. Jim is on the line next. Hello, Jim. Yes. Hi, what's your question? Yeah, uh, I gathered up a few pine cones, and I was thinking about trying to uh, get some starts off of it. I've got a window down in the basement that catches a lot of sun in the wintertime. Is there any secrets or hints that you could uh, have that help me in that process? You know, it depends on the species and it depends on a lot of those different factors. My biggest hint would be to figure out what species you have, whether it's actually, you know, a pine or a spruce or something like that. Make sure you know exactly what you have and look it up because each species will have its own kind of um, kind of formula for germinating and growing. Most of them will need a cold treatment before getting started, although not all of them potentially, but most of them will. And so to know that, um, you would need to identify the species and then kind of look up a guide for germinating that particular species. Um, it's hard for me to know all of them off the top of my head, but in general, we know that when we're germinating tree seed, it tends to be easier to, to sow the seed in the fall and let na Mother Nature provide the vernalization or the um, the cold treatment so that they can then germinate in the spring. And often we do this in a nursery bed so that we can decide where to ultimately plant the tree um, once it once it starts growing and gets a little bit of size on it. Um, growing them indoors is going to be a little bit more difficult and you won't inherently get that cold treatment that it almost certainly needs. Um, and so you would have to figure out, you can absolutely provide it. A refrigerator is actually the perfect kind of place to do that in. Um, but you would need to get that uh, get that started uh, soon so that you have enough uh, weeks. It's usually um, about three months, um, two to three months, depending on the species. And again, knowing the species, you can see exactly 
how many weeks it needs to be in the cold treatment uh, before it'll germinate and, and kind of go from there. And harvesting seed from pine cones is a very different process than harvesting seed from traditional um, either tree seed or prairie seed. It looks a little bit different. And so uh, those guides would also help you make, help you kind of clean and harvest the seed from the pine cones as well. Jim, thanks so much for the call. Let's do some email questions here. Kathy in Boone County says, I had a row of honeysuckle removed from my west windbreak. There is an existing row of mature pines there, but I'd like to plant something short where the honeysuckle was to help block the wind for the livestock and me as the pine foliage is now five to six feet up the trunk. Any thoughts? Yeah, it's a great idea, Kathy. I'm excited to hear the honeysuckle is out and in with the good uh, native shrubs. Um, in, in you're right, the physics of a windbreak are such that we definitely want some, uh, dense growing material down, uh, at the ground level to break the wind. And so, um, Kathy, I'd actually just point you to an article that we have. We actually have a bunch of resources about windbreaks on our natural resources extension website, including one, um, about windbreaks for wildlife. And there's even some applications to help you plan, uh, windbreaks. The, um, the list of native shrubs that Aaron and I were going through earlier, um, think American plum, dogwoods, um, arrowwood uh, viburnum. Yeah. A bunch of viburnums. They would all be available from the state forest nursery. They would be something that you could plant, uh, depending on the site characteristics, like how sandy your soils are, how wet they are. You're going to want to make kind of an informed decision there and then, um, get them in the ground. And in a few years, they'll hopefully be tall and blocking that wind for you. Uh, so check out that website, naturalresources.extension.iastate.edu. And on that, you'll find windbreaks for wildlife. And there's a whole table with options for windbreak shrubs and their associated site soil um, adaptations that you should consider to make sure you choose the right species or group of species for your windbreak. Yeah, Kathy, thanks so much for the question. Here's one from Randy in Iowa City. He says, the area between the sidewalk and the street on our street is a droughty clay mix that struggles to support turf grass. Any suggestions for drought-tolerant, relatively attractive plants that are not too tall because of city rules? (laughs) (laughs) So if it's dry there, it's either um, because the soil is really loose, which is not likely, or there's a lot of tree root competition, which is probably more likely. Um, and so I'm wondering if there's a lot of shade or not. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind uh, that could be a potential are some of the native kind of creeping flocks, uh, which could be really nice. And they're really pretty in the spring. Um, and they would tolerate that kind of rough site pretty well. Um, if you have more sun, um, something like self-heal or creeping thyme um, could be really nice, too, uh, in that location. Uh, pretty much any ground cover, um, whether it's native or not, could potentially work in that site. Um, so things like ajuga or bugleweed, um, you know, if you want something really tenacious, but it's not native, but vinca would work in that situation, too. Um, and so kind of looking up those kind of resources could add to my, my list there in terms of species you could pick. All right. And I think our final question of the day, um, Gary in Davenport writes, is pampas grass a good ornamental to plant versus other options and which one would be best? 
Do you remember the the list of species I mentioned that I that offend me? Uh, Charity, we have just hit hit on one uh, <laughs> pampas grass as a general rule. Uh, here's here's the deal on that. There are uh, varieties or cultivars of that that are less inclined to be invasive than others. Uh, that's obviously not my expertise as the natural uh, natural resources guy on the call, but. Um, it is definitely a plant that presents some challenges. That's uh, a, a grass that's in the miscanthus genus. And as you drive around the state, you'll often see uh, it has escaped cultivation in a yard and is growing in a roadside ditch or out into a, a grass field or otherwise. So I uh, discourage people from planting those species. They have a tendency to be more invasive than others. And as an alternative, there's lots of really nice native bunch grasses Um Think uh, big blue stem, little blue stem, um, prairie drop seed, switchgrass, switchgrass, uh, and some horticultural cultivars of those that can be aesthetically nice and not present those challenges that we have for adjoining natural areas. Yes, I would argue they are just as beautiful. We are out of time, but Adam Jenke, thank you so much for doing the show. Yes, thanks for having me. It was fun. Adam Jenke, Iowa State University Extension Wildlife Specialist, Aaron Style, thank you. You're welcome. Aaron Style, Iowa State University Extension Horticulture Specialist. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Danny Gear, Caitlin Troutman, and Samantha McIntosh. Our intern is Kate Perez, and we had production assistance today, technical support from Steve Cooper. I'm Charity Nebbe. This is Talk of Iowa. Have a great weekend.